Welcome to the Songwriter Podcast, where stories inspire brand new songs. My name is Ben Arthur. This week, we have a live performance of a song by Senya Rubinos. But first, the inspiration for the song, a chapter from Rick Moody's recent novel, Hotels of North America, about marriage, a relapse, and an unfortunate wardrobe malfunction. The book is narrated by Reginald Morse, whose ups and downs are charted within his eccentric and very personal critiques of America's hotels and motels. Though it might seem counterintuitive, Rick feels the unusual form allowed his writing to be more emotionally honest. I think that fiction is a is not the real world, it's a simulacrum of the real world. And that the form, even though we love to fall into it as though it were a landscape painting and we were crawling into it, and even though that's how we feel about it, it's still some kind of joyful, enthusiastic fantasy. And so I wanted to attach things to it that foregrounded its artifice a little bit, because that's where I come from. I come from the post-1921 world of the novel that understands it to be a beautiful, glittering artifice. As Rick pointed out, just because something's not real doesn't mean it's not true. It can totally be true. It can be emotionally true, and I certainly hope it is. Interestingly, Rick says that the book itself took inspiration from both literature, especially Nabokov's Pale Fire, and music. Many pieces of music are funneled in here, you know, um, and are being dealt with and um, sort of reconfigured and spit out in prose. And now, here's Rick Moody reading a chapter from Hotels of North America, live at WNYC's Green Space in New York City. You may know or have heard that this book consists entirely of hotel reviews. Not normally the matter of a novel, perhaps, but this hotel reviewer is kind of singular in his inability to talk about the hotels under scrutiny and instead to go on at great length about certain personal things that would perhaps better have been kept to himself. Thus the story... So I'm going to read a little example here um, from the book. This passage is called uh, Viking Motel, 1236 North Detroit Avenue, Eugene, Oregon, August 15th to 19th, 2011. My cousin Dennis asked me if I would consider officiating at his nuptial event, and I agreed and therefore needed to find a way to get myself ordained fast. Now, it occurred to me that officiating at weddings was a sideline, a moonlighting gig not at all dissimilar to my primary business line of motivational speaking. What kind of wedding-related oratory, after all, is not motivational at its core? Just about anything that comes out of your mouth in the nuptial theater inspires, transports. It seemed just and right that I should apply to the Infinite Love Church, which is one of those seminaries that ask of you only the $18 that will thereafter enable you to carry out the sacred rites associated with marriage. 
Church. The Infinite Love Church requests that you read a few rather sugary pamphlets about their ecumenical views, and then they send you an email confirming that you are in law ordained, after which you're advised to contact the county clerk, wherever you're intending to serve, to ascertain that an online ordination is considered valid in that state. In this case, the affianced parties were Dennis and his bride-to-be, Olga, of Ukrainian origin. Olga had been in this country since she was seven and had no trace of an accent. She favored brightly colored athletic gear, a little on the baggy side, as though she were trying to hide a third breast. She'd read a lot of Dostoevsky. I learned all of this at a meeting I had with Dennis and Olga, which seemed, seemed like something that I ought to do before conducting the nuptial ceremony. If you're officiating and you're trying to seem as though you are an intercessor, that the word of God speaks through you, then you had best meet with the parties concerned. Olga and Dennis came by the motel where I was staying while in town, the Viking Motel. About the women loitering in the parking lot, let me just say, that's youth culture. It's a college town. And let me say, too, that Dennis did not deserve the long interval he served in the federal penitentiary for transporting copies of stolen material across state lines. And if anyone was capable of being rehabilitated in the penitentiary, it was Dennis who met Olga while he was there. It was some kind of epistolary romance permitted and facilitated by Dennis's job in the prison library. Dennis was a trembly, nervous person with an island of hair on the front of his forehead, a saddle horn, if you will, with not much else anywhere around. He was thin and hunched and resembled one of those dogs that you see in public squares in Eastern Europe. Dennis had not found a way to be comfortable in the world. He seemed as though he were habitually preparing himself for something awful, and this was justified because many awful things had happened to him. He said it was because he wore that necklace with the human tooth on it that his father had given him. At the Viking, there was a sign on the front of the vinyl-sided cottage that served as, as reception, and that sign said, Back later, see James in housekeeping. I never did see the sign removed. When James in housekeeping finally did turn up, after Olga and Dennis stood out in the parking lot watching women in detachable skirts march past, he sheepishly admitted that he had blood he needed to clean up, and the proprietor never appeared at all which was why Dennis had trouble finding me, neither he nor Olga having sufficient funds for a cell phone, or so they said. After I had drunk several bottles of beer, or more, awaiting their appearance, this behavior is sometimes called a relapse, staring at myself in a mirror on the wall by the bathroom that was so large I began to believe that I could walk into it, there was a knock on the door. Oh, 
mirror on the wall. Who has the beginnings of an irremediable paniculus associated with middle age that no amount of dieting can affect? Who has more body hair than a bonobo? I was wearing only boxer shorts in purple when the knock came. The hip waiters on the cabinet housing the television were for a planned fishing trip in the Cascades area, and I was unwilling to dislodge them to get corduroys out of my drawer. I therefore donned the hip waiters. I could see when I opened the door that Olga was surprised by the outfit, and I begged her to understand that I was an unsurpassed angler and had a suit at the green dry cleaner up the block, as well as a tie with a naked woman on the reverse side. Dennis knew me well enough not to be surprised, however, and soon the two of them were sitting on the bed somewhat uncomfortably. I poured them pop, with some ice fetched from the dispensary out by vending, and then sat in the lone chair by the window, still wearing the hip waders, which were not suspended properly on my shoulders. I asked them, first of all, if their resolve with regard to marriage was earnest and true, and characterized by profundities of desire and mutual support. I told them that marriage, as I had understood it during my own union, come to an end a couple of years before, was a sacred trust, and that many people married because they thought they were supposed to marry, or because society expected it of them, or because one of them was with child, or simply because they were bored and did not know what else to do with their lives. But, I observed, it was possible to do better than this. It was possible to be changed by the revealing light of marriage. In proportion to one's development in marriage, in proportion to the amassing of age-related epiphanic moments in the habit of love that is marriage, it was possible, I said, for the beloved to become more ravishing, more perfect, as when ascending into the concentric rings of paradise, and that in marriage we come to find the flaws of the beloved less irksome and instead more delightful and endearing, like that weird spitting noise that the beloved sometimes makes when hawking up reserves of toothpaste, or the tendency the beloved has to nervously scratch her ankle over and over again, or how about her wearing two pairs of socks all the time. (laughs) However, as I was saying these things, I happened to look down and to notice that because of the odd layering of my own garments, that is to say the boxer shorts and the hip waders whose straps had fallen from one shoulder completely, resulting in a sort of bagging of the waiters on one side and a concomitant riding up of boxers on the other. One portion of the intimate area of my own person was bulging out the side of my shorts. The sack portion of my most private self And while some men have modestly sized containers, I was not one of these men. 
It was not unknown to me previously the occasion of that pouch becoming somehow visible. It was an ongoing problem. And as indeed this was the case now, I quickly looked up, hoping that Olga and Dennis had not glimpsed the bit of me extruded from the shorts via the falling down and bunching of hip waders. Believe me when I say it was one of those wardrobe malfunctions that only chance can bring about. If I could continuously maintain eye contact during the discussion, perhaps I could imperceptibly move the shorts a bit or the waiters through some isometric hip exercise so that a bit of fabric would flap over the testicle in its colony of white hairs. I was driven to ever greater heights of rhetorical fancy in order to assure myself that Olga in particular continued to make eye contact with me and did not look down. I smiled like a mad person. Any false move or attempt to excuse myself could easily draw her eyes that way. I began looking around the room myself in the hope that my darting eyes, alighting here on the extra-large sex mirror, there on the stain on the stuccoed ceiling, would likewise seduce her gaze. I asked Olga, if the marital relations were satisfactory, if she could assure me that these relations were characterized by gentleness and intimacy and proper frequency, and there was a surging of in-breath from Olga, which at first I worried was because she had finally witnessed my little semi-bald protuberance with its four white hairs fumbling for recognition. But in fact... I think the in-breath was owing to the question being a probing and challenging one. And she thought for a while, and then she said she believed that the intimate relations were intimate, as she said, as I recall it. Dennis is a very sensitive man who loves the bodies of women, and I am lucky to have a man like Dennis. Then I asked Dennis if the relations were sufficient from his point of view, and he said, In the time I was inside the penitentiary, I came to believe that I might never get to touch the body, body of a woman again, and so our love is a kind of holy thing. And here the two of them smiled at each other, bashful smiles of the Confederates of love. Thanks. <laughs> That was Rick Moody reading from his novel, Hotels of North America. And now for the song written in response by Senya Rubinos. I asked Senya what first struck her about the book as she set out to write her song. The form was the, was the first thing that I thought of because I, um, I don't consider myself to be a talented uh, lyric writer. So um, I thought that I wouldn't even try in this setting where people you know, can, can speak well. Um, so I uh, attacked the form, and uh, that was really inspiring to me to, to read, to be reading a novel that was all these reviews. Um, just felt very surreal, and I felt like that was something that I could easily grasp. Um, and, it, and it was a good excuse to uh, experiment with movement and um, writing to movement. 
Senya was also struck by the book's unusual epilogue, which throws the entire premise of the novel into question and creates a certain amount of doubt as to whether the main character even exists. I actually really liked when I got to the end and I read that he may have just not existed. It felt felt perfect because it it doesn't really matter and it and it's um, it, in a way negating the character just to me it made it feel all more real and and important and. Um, and I, I, I just had a blast writing the, writing the piece. In the lyric writing, I was thinking about the anonymity of hotels and how I often feel like I could be anyone when I'm there or anyone could be me. And uh, I wonder who was there the night before or who's going to be there the next night. And uh, the feeling that anything could happen, um, I could die or evaporate. Um, and then also this feeling of longing. Um, feeling of, of wanting comfort and meeting. And now, with her song written in response to Rick Moody's Hotels of North America, here's Senya Rubinos with her song, Three Stars, performed live at WNYC's Green Space in New York City. Breakfast always ends. 
Senya Rubinas with her song written in response to an excerpt from Rick Moody's Hotels of North America. Rick Moody's newest book is The Long Accomplishment, a memoir of hope and struggle in matrimony. You can find it in any bookstore. Senya Rubinos, meanwhile, has been experimenting with a new musical persona she calls Senya 2020, and you can find her online. Special thanks to WNYC's wonderful staff, especially to Jennifer Sendro, John Schaefer, and Andy Lancet. Stay tuned for the next episode that features an excerpt from Kurt Anderson's critical history of America called Fantasyland and a song written in response by Vienna Tang. <laughs>